Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. In the fall of 21, I was golfing. I was walking the golf course. I was working out at home and uh, no issues, you know, normal like I had been my whole life. Barry Rudd is a former filmmaker who lives in Canada. He's 60 years old and likes to stay in shape. Showed up at the golf course first day. It was in May of last year, almost a year ago to this time. And I got my cart out. I have an electric cart that carries my clubs. I walk behind it. That's how I've done it for the last five, ten years. Just because I do have some breathing challenges. I was born with a unique condition. Just an annoyance more than anything. But a few times I would get a pneumonia. There would be a bacteria. It would colonize in my chest. So then I would go to the doctor, get antibiotic, I'd be on my way. (laughs) And that's basically how my life went, maybe for the first 50 years. So I had started walking to the clubhouse and my friend came along, he always drives a power cart. He says, you want to ride today? And I said, no, I'm walking. But his health took a turn for the worse. He couldn't take more than a few steps without gasping for breath. I took about 10 steps and I realized I can't do this. I said, okay, all right. So, And so I rode all last summer. Then I started noticing a pretty significant decline in my breathing performance. I did start feeling fluish and uh, that was the first sign. And I just sort of thought, I've got a pneumonia. Doctors told him he had an infection and prescribed antibiotics. But after a few weeks of using the drugs, his symptoms just got worse again. So then we tried a different one. I'd be good for a couple of weeks and then back decline. So it was a lot of hope and then disappointment. Hope, disappointment became the norm. Barry, it turned out, had become afflicted with a particular strain of a bacterium known as a superbug something that's evolved to resist the effects of common antibiotics. So I've always seen respirologist specialists. My respirologist casually mentioned this superbug, which I had never heard of. We were so preoccupied with COVID, I never even considered that, you know, I might have a superbug and it had colonized in my, in my lungs. And I, I realized I had to intervene do something, I had to put a stop to my work. The number of bacteria that can evade modern medicine is getting worryingly large. Superbugs are a ticking time bomb for public health around the world. Doctors often talk about the problem of antimicrobial resistance as a hidden pandemic. But producing new antibiotics is hard, and drug companies don't seem particularly keen on taking on the challenge. 
There is another possible solution to this growing problem, though. A type of therapy that's a century old, but is once again attracting serious scientific interest. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science and technology editor. Today, we'll look at how the crisis of antibiotic resistance could be solved using a type of virus called a phage. These are a type of medicine that were once popular in some parts of the former Soviet Union, but which have been long forgotten in the Western world. As the issue of antibiotic resistance becomes more urgent, though, scientists are looking again at phages. But what needs to happen for these treatments to be brought back into the mainstream. Bacteria are these microscopic organisms that exist within our bodies and within the world around us. And a large number don't affect us in any way. Some do some good for us and some do us harm. Gilad Amit is The Economist's science correspondent. And when these get inside our body, they can reproduce and they can cause the body's immune system to go on attack. And sometimes the bacteria themselves can be toxic to us and sometimes the body's reaction to them can be even worse. Give me some examples of common uh, bacterial infections. The two main classes of infections are bacterial and viral. And within bacterial, you have anything from urinary tract infections to tuberculosis, gonorrhea, syphilis. All of these things are bacterial. How are these infections normally treated? So the most common treatment used today is antibiotics, the most famous being penicillin. These are a medical miracle. The first ones were discovered in the late 1920s, and they can eliminate entire colonies of bacteria quite easily. What they do is, in many cases, disable some critical aspect of the bacterial anatomy that they need to survive, such as they no longer have a cell wall or something like that, and then they die out. But bacteria, of course, evolve, sometimes they can be problematic to treat as we've discovered new antibiotics. Bacteria have evolved to sort of uh, resist those things. And there's an increasing number of people like Barry, who we heard from at the start of the show, who've become infected with bacterial strains that are resistant to treatment. Can you just explain how that works? So that's absolutely right. And this rise in what's called antimicrobial resistance or AMR is a massive problem. And it's been described to me as a sort of slow wave tsunami, something that is eventually going to engulf us if we don't take care. The problem is that antibiotics are so effective and so easy to use that they are massively overused. And only a third, it's estimated, of antibiotics worldwide are used on human beings. The remaining two thirds are used on livestock, sometimes to cure disease, but mostly just to prevent any disease from arising. And this exposure to antibiotics means that in the arms race between them and bacteria, bacteria sort of know what the future attack is and can evolve these resistant properties. Now, the term superbug is sometimes used for a bacteria that is resistant to, to one or more antibiotics. And these are on the rise, particularly in hospital settings. A notorious example is MRSA, which is one of these superbugs. And patients who have these infections sometimes try the entire arsenal of antibiotics without the bacteria getting dislodged. 
And so just to be clear how these things evolve, I mean, bacteria are reproducing all the time. And when they come across an antibiotic, usually they'll be killed. But some will have, by complete chance, evolved characteristics that allow them to survive an antibiotic attack. And if you continue using that particular antibiotic, then the resistant bacteria will grow and therefore that antibiotic becomes useless. And that's how, in a, in a nutshell, the antimicrobial resistance problem around the world, the overuse of antibiotics has caused the issues that we're going to discuss in the show. That's absolutely right. And for example, during um, COVID, studies are now starting to show that the sort of emergency medicine resulted in there being far more prescriptions and far more doses taken of antibiotics. So this problem isn't getting any better. And the numbers are really quite frightening. Obviously, these are all estimates. But in 2019, the estimate was that just over 1 million people died as a direct result of having infections that antibiotics couldn't cure. By 2050, that is estimated to be closer to 10 million. And there's very little risk of all antibiotics failing completely, but even every one that disappears is a real problem. And just outline for us what that world looks like if, if you don't have easy access to antibiotics. Because it's not just a case of, you know, if you get a disease, uh, a bacterial infection that the antibiotics can use to fix it. I mean, it, essentially, antibiotics enable a lot of other modern medicine. Losing antibiotics is probably the single easiest way we could recreate what life was like in the 1920s. It would reduce life expectancy by a third. It would make childbirth, chemotherapy, dentistry. Any surgery, in fact. Any kind of surgery, transplantation, anything that uh, sort of involves the internal part of the body being exposed to the outside world, vastly more dangerous as opposed to routine. Okay, enough terrifying people with the problem. Um, what can we do about it? So this is one of those problems that requires a multi-pronged approach and it requires the world to act in concert. The most important thing that can be done is the promotion of more responsible use of antibiotics. This isn't just by doctors prescribing them only when needed and patients only taking them when needed, but it's also tackling the vast amount of antibiotic use for non-human health purposes. So in agriculture, where antibiotics are used on massive scales, unnecessarily, prophylactically, that needs to be curtailed. But then there are also innovative biological solutions that are being explored to overcome bacterial infections that are resistant. Some involve tweaking the bacteria in ways that make them more susceptible to antibiotics. Others involve trying to partner antibiotics with some other treatment that enhances their, their ability. But the thing that is probably the most exciting and the most ignored, in my view, is phage therapy. Okay, so let's talk about phages. What are they and why are they so exciting now? So phages are viruses, and they are viruses that do to bacteria what viruses like COVID do to human beings. In other words, they spread through populations incredibly rapidly, and they cause carnage. They've evolved in lockstep with bacteria for millions of years, and so they're wise to their, their tricks. And so when bacteria evolve, viruses like phages can evolve with them. Phage is short for bacteriophage, which... Uh, is derived from the Greek for eaters of bacteria. They're not literal Mr. and Ms. Pac-Man roaming around the world swallowing up bacteria, but they infect them, reproduce massively within them, and then eventually cause them to, to die. In the back of my mind, I think I've heard about phages, but and it's, it can't be a new idea. I mean, how long have people been trying this out? 
So phages were discovered before antibiotics were, and they were relatively effective. They were used on patients. They were used in some um, outbreaks of disease. But then antibiotics came along, were more effective, were more reliable, were easier to understand. And so phages receded into the background. And now that antibiotics are not working, they've come back. They have. And now we have the technology and the understanding to actually put them to better use. And while they've been forgotten in most of the world, there's actually one country that has a 100-year record this year of consistently producing them and prescribing them to their population. Okay, so this is exciting. So you went along to for, for a visit, right? That's right. I packed a microphone and went to the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. So I've just got off the bus and I'm walking towards the Eliava Institute here in Tbilisi. It's a noisy enough walk next to a main road, but it's a pleasant enough view of the river. I'm going to meet with Bzia Kutateladze, who is the director of the institute and hopefully some of the other members of staff. Hello. The Eliava Institute is one of just a handful of institutions around the world that specializes in the study of bacteriophages. The center will actually celebrate its centenary later this year. Zia told me a little bit about their history. 100 years ago, this French-Canadian microbiologist, Félix Durel, as soon as he found that uh, on the plates in the laboratory that FH was killing this bacteria, and uh, then he decided to use it for therapy, it worked. Felix Derel was a microbiologist at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, and he treated a patient with phages for the first time in 1919. It saved a 12-year-old boy from dysentery. Then we had the, they had the massive application of phages against cholera, in Calcutta, in, in India, so and it became kind of standard, a very strong part of a struggle of infectious diseases. One of Felix Dorel's colleagues in Paris was a young Georgian scientist called George Eliava. He helped found the institute in Georgia, which now bears his name. From that point on, phage therapy became an established treatment across the Soviet Union. But at around the same time in London, Alexander Fleming found a mold that was capable of killing bacteria. He found it by accident, and it was, of course, penicillin. That remarkable chemical turned much of the world's attention away from phages. So, of course, this was the main reason why the phages were kind of abandoned in, in the West. But then, after discovery of the antibiotics, somehow the antibiotics were very strong, killing everything. But at the same time, phages, you know, it was lack of understanding of phages, because you cannot use any phage for treatment. So you have to be very selective. Unlike antibiotics, which essentially aim to destroy all bacteria they come across, phages are viruses that infect only very specific target bacteria. They're the contract killers of the antimicrobial world. Different phages work in different ways, but most useful phages work by latching onto a bacterium and injecting their own DNA inside it. Then, just like a viral infection spreads inside a person, the phage 
forces the bacterium to churn out yet more phages. And this buildup of phages inside the bacterium eventually bursts out, killing the superbug in the process. As I was taken around the Eliava Institute, the scientists there explained to me how their process works. Uh -huh. First, the bacterium which is causing the disease in question needs to be identified. That's because phages are so picky in their choice of targets that they might react differently to different strains of the same species of bacteria. It's subtleties of this kind that were ignored when phages first appeared in the 1920s, meaning that they were less effective than they could have been. Next, a phage has to be found that can attack this bacteria. This is done by trawling through the phage libraries of the Institute. The Eliava has one of the world's largest collections. Okay, thank you. I'm in the laboratory now and the door has a big red sign that says biohazard on it. Because we're, we're dealing with bacteria. Okay. Lika, one of the scientists who works out of a laboratory at the Eliava Institute, gave me a demonstration. One of the fridges in her lab is teeming with containers that host all sorts of different phages collected over the course of decades. To test which of these works best, she applies a drop to a petri dish overflowing with bacteria that they want to attack. Uh, tested some different phages for, from our which collection, and uh, these two, one, two, three, and the spots are the phages, different okay. phages. So this is, this is a, can, I, can I call it a Petri dish, or is it? This is a Petri dish. Petri dish, thank you. And, and so it's, it's mostly white, there's a white sort of film okay. over almost all of it, and then there are numbers, one to twelve, on the surface, and underneath some of the numbers, there are these transparent circles where it looks as though there is nothing. Nothing, because the bacteriophage killed bacteria. If the institute doesn't already have a suitable phage, researchers need to go hunting for something better. If there is a, something absolutely new bacterium, new species something, of course we might not have this uh, phage in our collection. In that case, of course, this isolation, hunting is, has a primary okay. importance in that case. They do this by looking in the same sorts of places where the target bacteria might be found. This is because the two phage and bacteria, will evolve together over time as predator and prey. Where one is found, so will the other be. As the best place to find resistant bacteria is in humans, that means a lot of looking through the places where human waste ends up. So sewage, and especially hospital sewage. Of course we go there and when I, we isolate the phages, of course this is very important to find them there. The next step that happens at the Eliava Institute is the phages need to be grown in bulk. And this is done by growing them within vats of bacteria. What comes out of this process then needs to be purified to separate the remains of the bacteria from the phages. So this is my small working office. You have a lovely view. To understand all of this better, I spoke to Vajo Pavlanishvili, the head of phage production. What makes this place unique, definitely, without any doubt, is the thing that this is the only place nowadays in the world that offers the full cycle of the phage, uh, starting from phage research down to the phage applications. And we are part of this full cycle. In terms of production, what we do is we, let's say, we collect the data from many, many cases of infective disease, identify the correct phages, and try to make the preparations that would work most efficiently on the biggest population. 
So we try to make standardized preparation, which will work for most of the people who can get ill with this or that uh, bacteria. So we use bacteria to grow phages before we purify that stuff and so on. One problem that Vajo needs to think about, though, is the threat of bacteria mutating to resist his newly manufactured phages. This is the same problem that we've already encountered with antibiotic drugs. Phages also create some resistance. It is many, many times less than antibiotics. To avoid these phages leading to resistance and inadvertently creating even more dangerous superbugs, Vajo needs to keep updating the recipe he uses in his phage cocktails. What we do is we look at the data all the time, but every, let's imagine every six months people are sitting at the table saying that, okay, for this component we have uh, 10 or 15 resistant bacteria, what we have done against them, were we able to train our existing phages to fight with this bacteria mm. because we very rarely add phages to the cocktails. What we usually do is just take our phage and try to train the existing phage to fight the resistant bacteria or the phages that have low susceptibility mm. against the bacteria. Finally, after all of this, the phages can be given to patients. Bieliava's phage therapy center treats over a thousand patients a year. Most of these are people who live in Georgia. And to them, phage therapy has been a normal part of mainstream medicine for a century, as Zia Kutateladze explained. The institute is very traditional. Everybody knows about this, and uh, it had very high recognition, you know. This is so traditional, and people without doctors, they are coming here to get phages and uh, use it, you know, for the minor infections, you know, for example, throat or nose infections. Many people, they do not want to use antibiotics, and it's some minor cases. It's a normal part of the, you can go to the pharmacy and buy it, it's over the counter, so it's, it, you don't need the prescription. Zia wanted to prove to me that off-the-shelf phages do exist, so she took me to the nearest pharmacy. This is general pharmacy, uh-huh. we're selling Different stuff, but these are all phages. Okay, so this is. These are sort of the, these are three shelves with little boxes on them. Yeah, well, they are in the refrigerator. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they should be kept in the refrigerator. Okay. And this is for intestinal problems with the 16, 16 different. So this is the combination of the. And so these, these, are, these are boxes just like anything you'd get in a pharmacy. Okay, and these are little files. Um, yeah. How much they can take? Ten milliliters each. And Ten a, milliliters. It's a fifty milliliter. It's sort of it's, it looks a little bit like um, vanilla extract. Hmm? You know, sort of yellow, <laughs> like no, when, you, when you're cooking. It's a it, bit darker. It's darker. More lemon. No, no. Lemon extract. Lemon, lemon. There are phages on the pharmacy shelves for all sorts of different conditions. There are some in these little bottles that you can drink. There are also creams and even suppositories. The phage treatment offered in Georgia has acquired quite a reputation. More than 500 of the patients who come to Viliava each year come from different countries. We are receiving patients everywhere from 80 countries. 8-0. Yes, 8-0. David Sturia is the director of the Eliava's phage therapy center. Most patients are coming from Central Europe, like from France, from Germany, from Britain, from uh, Holland. But also we have patients from USA, from Asia, and from other continents too, of Australia. Approximately we have uh, five, six hundred international patients per year, and we have more than thousands uh, Georgian, like local patients from Georgia. What sorts of patients do you get then? What kinds of infections? How severe? What? Who? Who approaches you? Leah Nadareshvili is a doctor at the clinic. 
The main conditions that people contact us with would be urinary tract infections, respiratory infections, chronic bacterial wounds. Lana Abesadze, the patient relations manager, translated for Leah. She says that we also have an approach with genetic conditions that have the predisposition to be leaning more towards having bacterial infections, which is like cystic fibrosis, ciliary dyskinesia, where patients have chronic bacterial infections over and over again, so they have to use antibiotics, in which cases our goal is to replace antibiotics in their life for them to have a more natural alternative to it. She says that uh, our goal is not to replace antibiotics completely because there are areas where antibiotics are still needed. But uh, she states that we would like to replace them where phages can replace them. So there's areas in terms of bacterial infections where phages can replace antibiotics. So I live in the UK. Let's say I had an infection of some sort. I wasn't able to get it treated by antibiotics. It seemed to be resistant. Could you talk me through what the process might be, how I would make contact? So I'm the first point of contact. I would ask questions about your symptoms, your past lab reports, any medical information that you can provide. After that, I go through the case with our doctor here. The initial recommendation would be to send us a sample. We test for the bacteria, we test the sensitivity of the phages, and after we know the bacterial load, the sensitivities, we make further recommendations. Now, we prefer to recommend local therapy because it tends to have a higher success rate. When you say local therapy? Local therapy meaning that you would come here to Georgia, spend about two, three weeks here. We would do further investigations, further testing, consultations with multiple doctors in multiple fields. We try to have a holistic approach and we try to have a systemic approach to a patient and not only deal with their infection, but also what the infection causes and other factors that they have in their health. The local treatment therapy includes about three months of therapy, initial two weeks here, and we also give them a course to take home with them and a prescription, and afterwards we're staying in touch over email. Someone who knows the ins and outs of this process all too well is Barry Rudd, whom we heard from at the start of the podcast. I met Barry in Tbilisi. He'd traveled from his home in Canada to the Eliava Institute as he was keen to find alternatives to antibiotics for his superbug infection. I'm hopeful that maybe phages along with antibiotics might be a solution for me. I'm not hoping for miracles. I would just like that little element of my life back. So phage therapy, I guess, when you first hear about it, it just sounds like another kind of therapy. And, you know, why not explore it? And then when you start looking into it, you discover that in many ways it's deeply weird or very different from lots of other things. What was that moment like when you realized what this therapy consisted of? Um, You know, I thought, okay, there's going to be little critters swimming around in my bloodstream, battling it out with bacteria. That didn't concern me too much. I wasn't scared of it. I mean, when you're in the position I was in, you're willing to try anything. Like, you know, if they want me to stand on my head and drink lighter fluid, you know, you might try it. (laughs) You know, I don't know. It's, uh, you, you know, when you're desperate. Barry's doctors in Canada couldn't recommend he try phage therapy, as it's not an approved treatment in that country. So he paid for the treatment and the flights himself. The treatment costs around four and a half thousand U.S. dollars. I didn't want to tell the world back home because 
I fear that people think, you know, it's like a stage four cancer patient grasping at straws, you know, that they would view me like that to fly to Mexico and get some sort of snake oil. And I, you know, I didn't want to be viewed as that person. Barry's treatment course on site in Georgia lasted two weeks. Then he was sent home to Canada with months' worth of little bottles of phages to drink. I caught up with him soon after he'd returned home. So I was on them up until about five days ago. Now I'm just on the standard phages for another five days. And then I go off for two weeks and then I start another round. Um, And then I'm still on my breathing medications that I've always been taking all my life anyways. When we spoke in Georgia, you said that sort of you had this underlying condition that meant that you were sort of, you sort of indicated with your hand that you were about 70-80% of what you would be without the condition. And you'd sort of hoped with the help of phage therapy to get back to that level. So rather than complete functioning. So how close do you feel in your good moments now to how you were before this latest pneumonia? You know, I hate to make any declarations as of yet. You know, we've been through a lot of uh, ups and downs with the antibiotics over the last year. But I have to say the last week, the last five days for sure, I've noticed immense improvement in my health. I would say I'm about 80% recovered. I, I first noticed that my, I would call it subconscious energy came back. Just getting up out of a chair to go grab something all of a sudden was not something I had to think about. That was just there. I just started noticing I had this energy that I didn't have. We've been walking. I've been walking. My wife and I went out with the dog last night and we walked 45 minutes straight. I didn't have to stop and rest, which that might be the first time in a year and a half that that's that's been the case for me. Barry's recovery so far is encouraging, but it is, of course, still early days. And phage treatment is so personalized that some patients who return from Tbilisi won't see any benefits at all. While the Eliava Institute has a century of evidence of the effectiveness of phages, very few clinical trials have been conducted to the standards that the rest of the world requires, which is why, in countries like the UK and the US, it's only offered in exceptional circumstances, if at all. But times are changing. And interest in phage therapy is on the rise. More clinical trials are starting all over the world and there's more investment available. We'll explore more of the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead next. We'll be back with Gilad shortly, but first a quick reminder that we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of Babbage and all of The Economist podcasts at economist.com slash Babbage survey. It'll only take a few minutes Thank you so much for your time. Coming up, how are the lessons from Georgia's phage industry inspiring Western companies? Gilad will also tell us whether he thinks phage therapy could turn the tables on the fight against drug-resistant bacteria. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. 
The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Today on Babbage, we're exploring the potential for phage therapies to treat drug-resistant superbug infections. Our science correspondent, Gilad Amit, has been investigating. After hearing about the role of phages in Georgian medicine, I wanted to find out how they were being used in the rest of the world. Someone who's helped raise the profile of phages internationally is Stephanie Strathdee. Stephanie currently leads phage research at the University of California, San Diego, But until a few years ago, her specialty was infectious diseases. My husband and I are both AIDS researchers, and we travel extensively, and we had been on vacation in Egypt in 2015, and he got extremely ill after um, eating a seafood meal, and I just assumed he had food poisoning. But when he started deteriorating and complaining of back pain, it was clear that that there was something else going on. And it turned out that he had a gallstone that had lodged itself in his biliary tree and caused a giant abscess to form in his abdomen the size of a small football. And now that caused pancreatitis, which is a serious enough condition on its own. But really what ended up um, almost killing him was this superbug, uh, a bacteria that was resistant to almost all antibiotics and then later became fully resistant to all antibiotics and that moved into the abscess in his abdomen and found a nice little apartment there and then was multiplying. So we were lucky that we got him medevaced first to Germany and then back home to San Diego where my colleagues are some of the top infectious disease physicians in the world that were caring for him, but even they couldn't help him. And after several months, he was deteriorating and it was clear that he was going to die. And I took matters into my own hands and uh, tried to find something that would cure him. What did that involve? Well, I um, conducted uh, my own literature review and I knew that phage were viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria, but I didn't know that they'd ever been used to treat bacterial infections. And at the time, there was scant literature on this, um, except for um, research out of Poland and uh, the former Soviet Union and, and some review articles. And so phage therapy was considered very hypothetical in the West. And it was clear, though, that the programs that existed in Poland and Georgia, that patients were traveling there, you know, real medical tourism to get treated, and some of them had success. So I proposed the idea to my colleagues that maybe we could try phage therapy to treat my husband because he was clearly going to die very soon without us doing something. So how did you set about finding the right phage? Yes. Well, it turns out that for each different bacterial species that there are phage that will attack it. And some of these phage are very picky and they have to be matched to the bacterial isolate. So it was worse than a needle in a haystack in a way because there's an estimated 10 million trillion trillion phages on the planet. And so we had to reach out to total strangers that were studying phage and ask them if they could help us try to find phage matches. And luckily, my colleagues, new colleagues at Texas A&M University uh, were able to find four phages that were a match. 
And even the U.S. Navy got involved, and they had sourced phages from the bilges of ships and had them in a phage library, like essentially a walk-in cooler. And these phages had never been used on humans before, just uh, rats and mice and a few rabbits. So it was a really risky move, but it worked. And uh, my husband woke up after receiving intravenous phage therapy, even though he was on the cusp of death. I mean, literally, I was told he was within hours of dying. And uh, made as, as... complete a recovery as you can expect after someone has lost a third of their pancreas and been hospitalized for what ended up being nine months. Wow. That's an extraordinary story. And I guess in the movie version of this, what happens is we go straight from the hospital bed to shots of factories being built, of phages being sold at pharmacy counters across the world. What's actually happened since that success? Well, some of that actually has happened. There's certainly been an incredible revitalization in phage research and and in phage therapy. The infectious disease community has really started to buy in and biotechs have popped up. Some pharmas have gotten interested in phage therapy, but it isn't fast enough to keep up with antimicrobial resistance. I mean, we know that four or five COVID vaccines were developed within a year when there was political will and resources and awareness and pressure. But uh, phage therapy really needs that kind of moonshot at this point. Most people are totally unaware that uh, the estimates are that by 2050, one person every three seconds is going to be dying from a superbug infection. And that's a, a cost of 100 trillion US dollars per year, mostly due to lost productivity. What role do you see phage therapies playing in a, a 2050 where we don't have one person dying of a superbug infection every three seconds? Well, in my kind of vision of what phage therapy could look like in the future is that we would have conducted a number of very rigorous clinical trials to show that they're efficacious and that there we would also have evaluated not just natural phages that are sourced from the environment, but genetically modified phages or even synthetic phages. And those are being studied now. In fact, biotech and pharma are much more interested in those approaches because they're easier to patent. And the first genetically modified phage cocktail to be successfully used in a human case was among a a teenager in the UK who had cystic fibrosis and had a double lung transplant and had a disseminated case of a bacterium that's a close relative to tuberculosis. So the success of that case really revitalized interest in uh, genetically modified phages. And so we would have all three approaches and in phage libraries around the world where they would be available uh, to treat patients. And we would know which phages mix well with specific antibiotics to synergize them. And we would have manufacturing capabilities in bioreactors to be able to grow phage up to the sufficient quantities that we need if there's an outbreak or if there was a a need for biodefense, for example. And also we would see applications for phage in agriculture and even aquaculture and in veterinary medicine. Of course, there are still plenty of challenges for phage therapy to overcome. One of the biggest obstacles to progress is that clinical trials just aren't being funded. 
And that's because the natural funders, the big pharmaceutical companies, are reluctant to invest. It's not that surprising. Phages are difficult to make money from, most obviously because they're natural entities and therefore they can't be patented. A few innovative companies are working on ways to get around this, though. One way is to tweak the phages themselves, genetically engineer them to be not only more powerful, but also, crucially, patentable. And another way is to patent the manufacturing process, rather than the end product phage itself. So even if resistance to phages does evolve and a new virus has to be created, you can still use, and importantly profit from, the same manufacturing process. These few glimmers of hope notwithstanding, much more is needed. Governments can help by investing money themselves, but they can also do a lot to make phage therapy a more attractive proposition for companies. In America, for example, the Food and Drug Administration has allowed phage firms to accelerate their early-stage clinical trials. In Britain, a parliamentary select committee has been holding hearings on how regulations regarding phage manufacturing, prescription and so on need to change, and their report is expected imminently. All of this suggests phages have finally found their way into the spotlight. But their big show-stopping number may be yet to come. Gilad, well, thank you very much for all of that. That was super interesting. We've heard some of the challenges that need to be addressed before phage therapy can be rolled out widely around the world. Perhaps the first thing to do is ensure that the right scientific studies are done. So what do researchers actually need to find out about this therapy before it can be used clinically? So there are lots of unanswered questions. What sort of patient would be best treated with phage versus antibiotics? Should phages be prescribed with antibiotics or on their own? Is the best way to administer it orally or uh, intravenously? What type of dose do you need? These are all questions that need answering and clinical trials are the best way to get there. More trials have been conducted on phages since 2020 than in the previous 20 years and the number seems to be rising year on year now. How successful do you think that trials have to be before healthcare systems around the world start to take them seriously as a treatment? So the two key words are safe and effective. That's what clinical trials need to demonstrate. And safety is sort of unquestioned now. It's pretty well established that phages are safe. There's a lot of consensus on that. With regards effectiveness, that's really what the clinical trials need to show. And there needs to be some standard of evidence to show that they're effective on a particular condition in a way that can be used. I guess there's also a sort of public acceptance uh, element to this as well, isn't it? I mean, the idea of being infected with a virus in order to get rid of a bacterium, if you're science literate and understand what phages are, it might be something that sounds sensible, but no one wants to be infected by a virus necessarily, right? If you're asked in a doctor's surgery. No, that's a problem that phage researchers wrestle with. I, for instance, I bought a phage cuddly toy for my son to sort of help destigmatize. To get him used to it for the future. <laughs> exactly. Um, but probiotics, for example, are fairly popular these days, and they are positive bacteria. Fecal transplants, for example, are something that is starting to take off for um, you know people with digestive problems. Penicillin originally was a mold, so I think public distaste can be overcome with sufficiently promising results. Your trip to Georgia showed us a country that has phage infrastructure sort of built into it. You know, it's in pharmacies, etc. And people there know about phage therapies because it's been used in that country, as you say, for almost a century. 
What do you think needs to happen in Western healthcare systems in order to start implementing things like phages more broadly? So let's assume that the evidence base comes in and there is enthusiasm and support for phage production. There are basically three things you need. You need to have doctors who are able to diagnose the patient and prescribe the appropriate phage. You need to have manufacturing facilities, which involves purifying the end product. And you need to have a library of phages that you can select from. And probably the biggest hurdle will be production, because at the moment, even though phages can only be used in the UK as a treatment of last resort, effectively, even in those cases, the phages have to be produced to a very high standard, a standard, for example, which the Eliava Institute in Georgia does not yet meet. And so there is some debate as to whether that very high standard is necessary for something like phages, which are already within our bodies. And if not, then they could be produced much more cheaply. So these are the sorts of debates that are being had at the moment. Now, if these hurdles can be overcome, can you describe for me what your vision uh, of the future of phage therapies might be like if if they were adopted uh, widely? How do you think that this kind of uh, medical intervention might play out? So I got a vision of the future when I was in Tbilisi and I went into a pharmacy and I saw there was a giant fridge that had inside little boxes full of files of, of phage, which is not something that um, that we have in this country. Certainly or, not. Um, and so the world, I hope, emerges is one where once phages are tested and if they are found to be effective, phages are available not just to people who are in the most dire straits and who happen to be able to afford either a trip to Georgia or have a doctor who can connect with with the Eliava Institute because the access is so limited at the moment and it's possible far more people will be able to benefit. And whether that means antibiotics as a whole being replaced, I doubt that, but it probably will mean that antibiotics in some uses will be phased out and that will leave more antibiotics for the, the really important cases that remain. How much of a difference do you think that phages could make in slowing down the problem of antibiotic resistance? So I've been looking into this story for months, and the best answer I can give you is that I don't know, but I really want to find out. Because there just isn't the research as yet to say what kind of impact it could make. And the real chicken and egg problem here is that nobody is willing to put in money until there are better results. And there are not going to be better results until people put in money. So hopefully we will have a definitive answer. And if it's no, then we'll know to divert our efforts elsewhere. And if the answer is positive, then, you know, bring on the phages. Well, given that uh, pharma companies seem to be uninterested in developing new antibiotics and the, the problems you've already outlined with the antimicrobial issues around the world, I mean, it feels like every tool you can investigate would be a useful thing. And phages have been around for a long time and ignored. And it seems like they deserve a decent crack, right? Um, how positive do you feel about whether or not they'll get that decent crack of the whip? Things are changing very fast now. When we posted this article online, one of the responses that we got from science journalists was, how are we still talking about phages in 2023? How because, are we not? <laughs> <laughs> and I can understand the frustration because this has been something that, you know, people have covered this story before, but it really does feel like this is a is a potential turning point because the number of trials is on the rise, the number of companies taking an interest is on the rise, governments are getting interested, and it's the centenary. So it does feel like this is a really exciting moment, and I'm hopeful in the next few years we'll start getting some answers. Okay, well, Gerlad, fingers crossed. Thank you very much for all of that. Thanks, Alok. 
Thanks also to all of the people who spoke with Gilad during his reporting. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read all of Gilad's reporting from his trip to Georgia on The Economist's website or app. I'd highly recommend it. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer for a month of our digital content for free. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.